Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. The scripture reading today is from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Every seventh year, you shall grant a remission of debts, and this is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but you must remit your claim on whatever any member of your community owes you. There will, however, be no one in need among you, because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy, if only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing the entire commandment that I command you this day. When the Lord your God has blessed you as he promised you, you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land the Lord your God is giving you, Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand willingly, lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking, the seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and therefore, View your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so, for on this account the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake." Since there will never cease to be some need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I don't know what it is about this reading from Deuteronomy, but as I was preparing for the sermon today, that old story about the parishioner who approached the preacher after church and gave the comment, you know, preacher, today you quit preaching and started meddling, (laughs) kept coming to my mind. So I don't know if it's the scripture or if it was a word of warning that maybe I should have heeded, but I do believe that good preaching dances on the line of preaching and meddling. And it's a fine line. 
And I want you to know that I wouldn't ever preach a sermon, just like I wouldn't ask you to consider a question that I hadn't myself considered you know, from a few weeks ago. But I also wouldn't preach a sermon that I didn't feel like the Spirit was preaching to me. And I felt a little meddled with this week, and so I'm sorry in advance if you do too. I was in college when Facebook first came out. At the time, if you remember, it was only open to college students, people with a .edu email address. So if you could imagine a whole new world for 18 to 22-year-olds only, developing all on its own in a brand new digital space, then you can imagine some of the fun that we had as we created kind of the first draft of what would become our digital image or our our online identities. Of course, none of us had any clue what would become of this random social experiment. We didn't have all the options for personalization that now come with online accounts, things like pictures and videos and tags and hashtags, which many of us are still trying to figure out. This was especially apparent in the category of relationship status. One of the few areas of customization beyond the person's name and the name of their school and one of the first public spaces where 18 to 22-year-olds could tell the world about relationships they were in. As part of my sermon research this week, I did go into those settings on Facebook to investigate whether this was still an option, and it turns out it is. Nowadays, if one wants to clarify for the digital world their relationship status, they can, and they can choose between some pre-written options. It used to just be single in a relationship or it's complicated. Now it's single in a relationship, engaged, married, in a civil union, in a domestic partnership, in an open relationship, it's complicated, is still there. Separated, divorced, widowed. I kind of wish there was another category, one that often appears in a drop-down menu like this one, uh, one which is generously ambiguous and offers the category of other. Those of us who identify as Gen X or geriatric millennials, that's me, will remember those original options, single, in a relationship, it's complicated, and you can imagine the fun that we used to have within those parameters, right? Status updates often reflected both academic and social realities for college students who were carving out this new space online, and we found ourselves kind of shying away from those committed categories of single or in a relationships, and rather having fun focusing our energy on exploiting that third gray area category, posting things like, it's complicated with biology. It's complicated with organic chemistry. It's complicated with the PAC. That was my favorite. The PAC is what we call the Physical Activity Center or gym class at Furman. Or it's complicated with Krispy Kreme donuts at 2 a.m. These were the updates that filled our Facebook feeds when we you know, should have been in the library studying. Uh, we were updating our statuses to include these kinds of important details about our personal lives. 
There's a lot to say about the nature of our human relationships and the ways in which we label those and then present them to the world both online and offline, but that is not the point of today's sermon, so you can all exhale, and that is not the point of the text from Deuteronomy. But as I was thinking and praying about how to invite us into that biblical text this morning, how to contextualize it in such a way that we might begin not to just hear the words, but to feel the dissonance in our own bodies, how to preach this text in a way that brought to life its challenges across time, culture, and geography, the refrain that kept coming to mind was that old relationship status category from Facebook 20 years ago. It's complicated. The little headings and some versions of our Bibles label this section of Deuteronomy the year of canceled debts. Other versions call it laws concerning the sabbatical year. And really, I think that those two titles couldn't be more different, especially how they land in today's society. The year of canceled debts and the laws concerning the sabbatical year. I'd be willing to bet that if somebody were to take a poll and to ask us as we uh, entered the sanctuary this morning, what was or what is the year of canceled debts? What would you say? I wonder if some of us would say 2022 when the president declared forgiveness of some student loan debt. Or maybe we would say 2020 or 2021 when the president rolled out PPP loans during the pandemic, you know, loans given to to businesses and nonprofits with a model of forgiveness built right into them, loans given knowing many of them would never be repaid. The year of canceled debts. I'm also curious what the polling would show if we were to have polled ourselves coming in, uh, what we think of when we hear the year of sabbatical. Well, professors and clergy might say sabbatical is the year when you get to step away from the daily grind of the job to get a bigger picture, either to rest or renew spiritually or to rededicate oneself to academic research, the year of sabbatical. Others may say that they know someone who got a sabbatical, but that was not a benefit of their job. It sounds kind of nice, but it's hard to imagine a year for sabbatical. For us, these words and phrases can carry all kinds of contemporary baggage, and they can tend to take us in completely different directions. The year of canceled debts or laws concerning the sabbatical, one, a radically generous economic practice, and the other, a radical break from daily labor. For us, these are separate ideas, which speak to different and very distinct parts of our reality, but for God and for God's beloved community, as described in the ancient words of Deuteronomy, these two ideas are one and the same. The word sabbatical is related to the word Sabbath, which perhaps might be more familiar. It means to cease from one's labor. We all know the fourth commandment, which is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is why we do things like this. It's why we gather in the sanctuary on Sunday and attempt to set aside the whole day for things that we wouldn't classify as work. 
But despite our best efforts, we have gotten away from that historic meaning of Sabbath. Think about your own lived experience. Some of you may remember a different kind of culture around the Sabbath day, maybe a time when everything closed down, when women would prepare meals for the household in advance, maybe put it in the oven on time bake so that you could still enjoy that hot meal after church on Sunday without having to do all the work on the day itself. There was a day when restaurants were closed where convenience stores were closed, where you couldn't just go out and run your errands and do all the normal busy stuff because the whole world was taking a break, a Sabbath. Can you imagine a world like that? Can you imagine an entire world practicing a rhythmic pause to rest and rejoice in the presence of God? Sabbatical took the principle of Sabbath and expanded it, applying it to the land and the community. Sabbatical was a holistic kind of Sabbath. Sabbatical meant that in God's beloved community, which was organized around God's own laws, every seventh day was Sabbath, like Sunday, and every seventh year was sabbatical, a bigger version. Everyone participated in the rhythms of rest and renewal. Everyone was offered a fresh start made possible by the redistribution of land and the cancellation of debts. This is where it starts to feel like meddling. It was clearly good news for those who were drowning in debt, those who were laboring in the fields of another landowner, those who were barely scraping by and struggling to get ahead. We can understand why the cancellation of debt would be good news for people like that, but it was also good news for those who had much For those who did not labor in debt, but who hired their help and kept ledgers listing the names of those who had borrowed from them. But where is the good news for them? We may ask ourselves as we imagine the great financial losses and the familiar feelings of a failed investment. Where is the good news in the cancellation of debt for those people? It makes sense for the ones who are receiving forgiveness, but how is it good for those who didn't owe anything in the first place? This is an important question because as people who hold the most of the world's wealth and resources, I have a suspicion that the good news for the landowners For the ones who did not qualify for debt cancellation themselves, I suspect that the good news for them in the sabbatical year might just be good news for us as well. You see, the good news for them and perhaps the good news for us is not in receiving the forgiveness, but in learning to release in flexing our letting go muscles and allowing our hands to open along with our hearts, to use the words of Deuteronomy, recognizing that our material wealth means nothing if our neighbors are suffering. Our personal material wealth, it means nothing if our neighbors are suffering. Civil rights icon Fannie Lou Hamer once said, no one is free until all are free. 
No one is free until all are free. Martin Luther King Jr. said, all of us are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And then as contemporary writer and researcher named Tricia Hersey is now saying, the gulf is bridged by the sharing of resources. Every day, individuals who are not rich but who are materially privileged make a choice to share with others. Mutual giving, she writes, strengthens community. Mutual giving strengthens community. Mutual and collective rest disrupts, interrupts, and heals. You see how she wove those together? Mutual giving strengthens community. And mutual collective rest disrupts, interrupts, and heals. It seems like she is beginning to tie together those once separate ideas of the year of canceled debts and the laws concerning sabbatical. Maybe. Maybe if we want to understand this more fully, maybe we simply need to release. To release our desire to control every single penny ourselves. To release our sense of bitterness that emerges when other people receive gifts that we ourselves did not receive. Release our commitment to the economics of Pharaoh. If you remember last week, the economics that thrive on these ideas of scarcity and the sense of anxiety which tells us there is not enough. Maybe we need to release our commitment to that economic model. Maybe we need to release the idea that our material goods are a mark of our own inherent goodness. Release so that we have room in our hearts and our bodies and our souls for God's abundance to come in. In the spirit of honesty and full disclosure, I should confess to you there is a healthy scholarly debate around whether the cancellation of debts was actually practiced in the ancient world. Some say it was a holy principle that the people articulated but never actually put into practice, while others say it was absolutely observed and honored and lived out in the rhythms of life and faith for the people of God, but the truth is for us, no matter the reality of their application all those years ago, the laws concerning the sabbatical year are clear in the scriptures. So maybe the actual relationship between the people and their money could have been classified as it's complicated, to use that new familiar term. 
Complicated not in the sense that it was confusing. People were not unclear about what God required of them in the sabbatical year. No, complicated because the people knew what was required and wanted to be faithful and obedient to God, and yet they struggled to commit to the doing of justice when it required them to release those who were indebted to them. When it gets personal, it gets complicated. And you know, that's what it's complicated as a status has always meant, at least where relationships are concerned. It means we know what kind of serious commitment is required. We know in our minds what is deserved, what is holy, what is good, and yet we also know that we are not capable of that kind of commitment quite yet. At least that is what it meant for us back in the early 2000s when we were in college, first declaring our relationship statuses for the first time in that very public digital space. But for each of us, the time eventually came, as it always does, for us to grow up and to figure out how to make the commitment. At Furman, we called this the DTR, the define the relationship. You know, that horrifying, anxiety-producing conversation where complicated has to turn into something else. Where two people have to decide and finally say to one another what they are and what they're going to be. Are we friends? Are we just getting to know each other? Are we dating? I mean, what is this? Are we committed? Are we going steady? As some of you may have called it. The scary thing is that any outcome would change the shape of the future. It would change our whole identity, and it would require us a certain amount of doing action to support the verbal and public commitment. You see, when it's complicated, turns into in a relationship, there are new expectations, new rules to live by. And so in this season, as we consider our money stories and our relationship between our faith and our financial practices, it makes me wonder if it isn't time for many of us to have a DTR, perhaps to define for the first time or maybe to redefine our relationship, especially in light of what the scripture says of release. I wonder if we might wish that we could say we were in a faithful relationship, but the truth really is it's complicated. Complicated because we live in the real world, which is not the fully realized kingdom of God. Complicated because we have to think about our own stability and self-sufficiency Complicated because we don't know what lies ahead. Complicated because we're all in different personal situations. Complicated because we want to grow closer to God and we want to be able to live as if the kingdom of God is already here. And yet we have to admit that the kingdom isn't fully here and we aren't fully able to commit. It's complicated. But then there are these little moments, these little moments where we see a glimpse of possibility, 
when opportunities for release dance through our imaginations and when we are called to release in ways that we never imagined before. Have you experienced moments like that? I have experienced them, and I have really enjoyed hearing them from you in these last months. I want to share a few with you without sharing names and with permission. Two weeks ago, a church member called me, and she and I were on the phone just talking about all kinds of things. And in a a passing moment, she said to me, I want to share with you that I was able to give more than I've ever given before to the church. And it's exciting. And I can't talk about it, but I want to share it with you. There was such a joy in the experience of release. And two or three months ago, I was sitting in the office and a church member knocked on the door and came in and said, you know, I've been pretty concerned about the church's finances lately. And I've been trying to imagine ways that we might together, you know, share our resources. And I wonder, you know, I'm retired, this person said. I wonder if some of us who have, you know, retirement accounts could give from those accounts. You know, that money is already invested. Why not move a portion of it to invest it here? in the work that God is doing at Greystone. And y'all heard the stewardship moment last week, talking about giving up, releasing some dinners at restaurants or canceling some TV subscriptions, finding ways to make room in the budget to reallocate, to reinvest, to reimagine, beginning with release. About a year ago, I met with a a couple who had a rental property, and they decided that when their tenant faced financial difficulty and couldn't make rent, that would be okay. They wouldn't move for eviction. They wouldn't tack on late fees. They'd just give thanks that they could make do without that income. Release of creative, imaginative, and biblical proportion. You know, in each of these moments, release broke through the usual economic patterns and provided a new practice of radical generosity, radical forgiveness, radical grace, and it was met with radical joy. Because as it turns out, release is needed for everyone no matter where we find ourselves in the financial hierarchy or on that debt ledger, we all need to learn how to release so that we can discover the joy of our shared liberation, the joy of our shared blessings, the joy of our shared generosity, and the joy of knowing that we haven't held anything back out of fear or scarcity. It's complicated, y'all. I'll be the first to admit it. But the truth is, it's really quite simple. We will never know the freedom of sabbatical. We will never know the full rest of Sabbath until we release our grip and open our hands and open our hearts and give everything away. So Lord, teach us to release so that we might learn the joy of Sabbath. Amen.